0: But before I show you what I brought with me this morning, I do need to give a warning because some of you will find this to be very offensive, all right, because it's been very divisive over the centuries. So with that disclaimer, all right, here we go, and you guys in the front will have to probably help with people in the back. What is this? (laughs) An owner's manual. An owner's manual or an instruction manual. Right Now, when you open up a box for something that you buy, or was given to you, perhaps, there's really three options of what you can do with this manual. One, and we can call this the man's option, (laughs) don't need that, but Um, the second option is we can use it, but we may misinterpret it or use it as it's not intended. So, you know, you may take your manual and say, well, you know, this part looks pretty good, this is okay, whatever. or you can misinterpret it. This could be the opportunity for you to practice your Mandarin, even though you've never spoken a word. <laughs> or you could actually intentionally act contrary to what this manual says. So, you know, this says okay, turn the screw clockwise, you're like, no, I'm gonna turn it counterclockwise. Ha ha ha. So the other yeah, two options. You can ignore it, you can misuse it, or the third option is we can use it as it's intended. And when we do that, we're recognizing that the people that made this product are probably the best people to listen to when it comes to how to put these pieces together. Unless they forget a part, then you're, you're off on your own. <laughs> now, I referenced instruction manuals this morning because what we have in Colossians 3.18 through chapter 4.1 is an instruction manual. But this manual, does a lot more than tell us how to put a bed frame together. That was my last one, it was four hours. I said it only took two, but it took way longer than two. This manual that we have in Colossians is much more versatile than uh, putting a bed frame together. What this manual does, it talks about the structure of marital relationships. It instructs us on proper relationships between children and their parents. It tells us the way that we ought to parent. And it actually talks about how we're supposed to act in a workplace environment. So in other words, this instruction manual talks about all human interactions. It talks about all human relationships. And as we're going to see this morning, kind of our takeaway truth is that all of our relationships serve as opportunities to glorify God. Because all four of these mentioned categories, we've got marriage, kids and parent relationships, marriage or parenting in the workplace can be very, and they often are, difficult things. But what this passage tells us is that is each of these, in them, we can live out to our highest calling, which is to glorify God. Because what we're going to see is that God is glorified when we love and care for our spouses as God has instructed. God is glorified when we live in obedience to our parents. Our parents are going <laughs> to say amen to that. Amen. <laughs> God is glorified when we parent like God who cares for us as his children. And God is glorified when we work heartily for the Lord. So for the next 25 minutes, we have the easy, simple task of talking about marriage, parenting, workplace dynamics. So super simple, no pressures. We're just going to fly through it. It's very convenient that Jerry's not here this week, too. (laughs) Alright, so like I said, we have it's a big task. Let's get started. So, first, God is glorified in our marriages, and the first part is when wives submit. Now I can already picture this. We're gonna when we leave the service, we're gonna have couples walking hand in hand, and they're getting in the car, and the husband's gonna look over and says, I love God's word. I especially love Colossians 3.18. I don't know why, just it stands out to me. It might be my new life verse, actually. <laughs> Marital advice, don't do that. Don't, don't claim 3.18 to be your life verse, especially to your wife. Maybe in your triad, but not to your wife. But in all seriousness, in our culture today, Colossians 3.18 is offensive to many, many people. Because this idea of wives submitting to their husbands is viewed as archaic. And to teach this verse is oppressive to women's rights. And in fact, this is a sort of verse that many cults have honed in on and used to, to bring about great, great abuse. And I think a part of the reason that we get so offended by this verse is that people have this view that submission is, we have this view because submission in marriage has been done so poorly in the past. We have misused God's instructional manual for marriage because we have misinterpreted the meaning of biblical submission. So one of the the tasks we have this morning is to do a little theological triage on this concept of submission. So first, and we're gonna do some nots, right, N-O-T, right? We should note that wives submitting to their husbands doesn't mean that she can't speak up. So submission is, doesn't equate to silence. Submission doesn't mean that you know, wives have to go along with all their crazy schemes that their husbands have come up with. Biblical submission doesn't mean that a wife has to be a a yes woman. Wives are also not called to submit as a sign of inferiority. God has made men and women equals because they're both made in the image of God. So that means that women are not lesser beings than their husband. I really want to stress that Paul isn't advocating that sort of view in this passage. He's not saying that women are, are lesser, so that's why they should... That's why they should submit. So what we have to ask ourselves is, so what is biblical submission, and what does it actually look like? And this, this is kind of my definition here. Biblical marital submission is a wife's voluntary, regular practice of accepting and living under the authority of her husband, and I really want to stress this point, as is fitting in the Lord. Author uh, Kathy Keller, who, you know, her husband, Tim, just passed away this past week, um, she's a great source on what comes to biblical submission, because she actually kind of came from a place where she didn't believe it. She didn't think it was biblical, she didn't really care for the idea, but she's written extensively about this concept. And in an article that she wrote about this, con- this idea of biblical submission, she said this, Submission is something that a wife gives... It's not something that a husband can demand. In other words, submission is an act of one's free will. Now, to the Colossians, who you know this letter was originally written to, this idea would have been revolutionary, because in those days, in in the original audience, women had no rights. They were not allowed to go to the marketplace by themselves. They weren't allowed to have meals with men. They had no legal rights. So if a husband said, I want a divorce, there's nothing she could have done. She's not, there was no protection at all. Men could do essentially anything they wanted, and a woman had to just go along with it. But here in Colossians 3, women are spoken to as people. They are spoken to as individuals with rights and the ability to make their own choices. And not out of obligation, but they were able to make choices out of their free will. Christianity, as we've seen in in the study of Colossians, is extremely liberating. And that's a reason that historians often say that in certain places, in certain cities, about 90% of the early church was made up of women. Paul is not saying in here that Wives, you must do whatever your husband says or else. That's what the surrounding culture taught. That's what the Colossians were hearing. Now, what Paul is saying is this. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. In other words, wives, choose to follow your husband. I really I want to keep stressing over and over that this this last line as is fitting in the Lord because it's extremely important and that's where this free choice this free will really keeps coming up. Wives, if you are if you well, if you're married, it kind of goes without saying. But if your husband is calling you to do something that is contrary to the will of God, you are called to stand to your ground. You're actually called to oppose your husband in that sense, because it is your job to be regularly reminding your husband of his calling, and his calling is to lead you and your family in holy living and godliness. Husbands have not been given this ultimate, all-encompassing authority, and there can be no questions asked. That's not what's being advocated in Scripture. Couples are supposed to have open dialogue. They're supposed to have conversations about big life decisions and big issues. Again, going back to to Kathy Keller, she said this, the the only time that a husband can use his authority to overrule is with knowing that he has the responsibility and the accountability to God to not only be doing it in order to serve, to only be doing it in order to serve and to take care of his wife and his family. And what we see is that when a, when a husband is faithfully leading as God has intended him to lead, when he's fulfilling his calling that God has given to him, wives are called to choose to submit. Now, now, ladies, this isn't an easy thing, right? It's not an easy thing to submit. It goes against our nature. But ultimately, wives are being called to submit to their husbands just as Jesus Christ submitted to the Father. That Jesus came to earth, but he never gave up his divinity. This is a key part of Christianity, is that Jesus never stopped being God. And yet, in Philippians 2, it tells us that Jesus, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he... He obeyed, or we could say he submitted to the will of the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. Wives, you are called to emulate Christ, to demonstrate Christ in your role of submission. To, to remind your husband of his obligation to lead your family. And as a part of your Christ-like role, you are called to obey the will of your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Again, I keep wanting to say it's not an easy task. Right? We can say this, but it's, it's difficult. But what we see is that when this happens, Christ is glorified in the process because we're acting as Christ in our marriage. We're emulating Jesus by doing this through the act of submission. So, so Christ is glorified in our marriages when wives submit. Right? And then, second part of this, this key thing we, about marriage Christ is glorified in our marriages when husbands love. So, wives have been called to submit, husbands, you're not off the hook. We also have a difficult task, and that ca- task is the command to love. And just like submission, this sort of love doesn't happen organically, it takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes, ultimately, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives. Ephesians 5 is what we might say is a parallel passage to our reading that we read this morning. And in Ephesians 5, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which if we think about, we study scripture, the church that Christ died for is how we're supposed to love. Paul phrases another way. He says that husbands are called to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Now, guys, do you understand the significance of this call? We need to ask ourselves if we love our wives as much as we love our own bodies. Now, if I get a pain in my knee... I tend to spring into action to take care of it, right? I'll, I'll you know, put my leg up, I'll get some ice, I may have my wife get me some lemonade. Uh, she's submitting, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, ooh, careful. But, um, so but, so I, I put my knee up, I get ice on it, I may take some ibuprofen. I am going to make sure that I take care of my knee as soon as possible so that I get better quickly. But do I act similarly when my wife is hurting? Do I act with that same sort of urgency? Do I go out of my way to make sure that my wife is cared for, even if it may mean that I need to make some sacrifices? Personally, I have failed at this. My wife especially knows I failed at this. Practically loving my wife means that I will put my wife's needs before my own. It means that I will give her time to enjoy the things that she enjoys. It means that I will regularly and consistently make sacrifices to care for her. Because what Scripture is telling us is that God has called me to lead her and to, to love her. Not as an authoritarian but like God who himself is called love. This is the God who got down on his hands and his knees to wash the feet of his disciples. This is the God who fed thousands of people who came to hear him teach. This is the God who died on Calvary in order to set us free. So husbands, I have a couple questions for you. Are you loving your wife in the same way that Christ loves you? I have a a, a better question. Would your wife say that you love her in a Christ-like way? Let's let that one sit for a little bit. Today is a new day that the Lord has given to us. So husbands, let's use this day to renew our efforts to love our wives well, to use the guide and love of Christ as our, as our compass. All right, moving on to verses 20 and 21. We got one seminar done, so we're all good. We're all master marriage people. Um, so we move from marriage to this kind of this realm of child and parent relationships and parenting. Christ is glorified through obedience to our parents. Verse 20 specifically says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And parents, we love that verse, don't we? Uh, I wish my guys were better readers, or I could read. But. Now, now, this verse has obvious connections to the fifth commandment. You know, The fifth commandment tells us we're supposed to honor our fathers and our mothers. Now, I want to, do, want to do make a point right away is that we need to clarify that the, this call to obedience and the words that were associated with this, these are different than the word submit that was used earlier in the chapter. In this marriage call of submit, we talked about how a man and a wife are equals. In parenting, parents have an innate authority over their children. I'm sorry, kids, but you're not in charge of your parents. Children are called to obey and respect the authority of their parents. And what does this passage tell us they're supposed to listen to? In everything. And why are we supposed to follow? Ultimately, because it pleases the Lord, which is another way of saying that it glorifies God. Now, I do want to clarify a point here, and this is kids hear me say this well, but I do hear what I'm saying is that. Just as wives are supposed to oppose their parents or oppose their their husband when their husband's calling her to do something that's contrary to God's will, the same principle applies here, that children should not obey their parents when they're called or asked to act in an ungodlike way. But in everything else, they're called to listen and obey. Now, again, kids, i am be cautious to say, well, you know, God doesn't really want me to take out the garbage. He, he does want you to take out the garbage. But God isn't calling for simple, simple outward appearances here in, our, in the children-parent relationship. What God is ultimately calling for, as he does all throughout Scripture, is that God is calling for heart change. And as children, and this applies to us adult children as well, we are supposed to understand that God has placed our parents in a unique position, A position that we are supposed to respect, even if it frustrates us at times. As kids, we regularly get to see all of the ways that our parents mess up. We have that, you know, hotly coveted backstage access. But unfortunately, that's not very pretty half the time. A lot of screaming and fighting, usually. But in this backstage position... God has given us a special opportunity to demonstrate Christ to our parents. That we get to show God, or show our parents a Christ-like grace, even when they mess up, even when they fall short of the standard that was set by our Father in heaven. So children of all ages, let's love our parents well, as a way to glorify God this week. So that was was our exhortation to to the kids. You guys got to listen. And now we move to the parents. Now, so third point this morning is God is glorified through our parenting when we encourage and we do not provoke. Now, verse 21, Paul is very intentional in his writings. I want to ask you guys who is being specifically spoken to in verse 21 fathers Now now why fathers Well is it because your know, moms are perfect and they get everything right <laughs> Well if it was mothers day we might say yes but we were one week off so unfortunately moms you're not perfect <laughs> Now, fathers are being spoken to specifically because they are called to lead the household. And in verse 21, fathers are commanded to not provoke their children lest they become discouraged. Another translation says we are not to let ourselves stir up our kids to anger. Now, as dads, we can provoke our kids in all sorts of ways. Some of you guys are master provokers. And there's always, there's all sorts of ways we can do it. On one side of the spectrum, we can say, uh, we can be very overly strict. We can be demanding. We can oftentimes act more like a warden than a father. We can set these, these high expectations that we, we demand our children meet, and then we show little grace when they don't meet them. So that's one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, we can be completely lax. So the art children have no sort of structure. They have no sort of guidance. We can call this being a, a hippie father. <laughs> but I do want to focus in on one provoking way that I think many fathers in our culture today fall into. And this is going to hit home for a lot of us. So I really want, I want to cushion a little bit, but not at the same time, I don't. One provoking way we fall into is Disengagement. I think many men today are very driven. They're very motivated individuals. We strive for success. We work hard to earn that big bonus. We work hard to receive that promotion. We work hard to receive that corner office spot where we can see the vultures eating roadkill. <laughs> We're willing to put in those long work office hours. We're willing to you know, pay our dues in order to achieve those goals. But friends, those hours and those efforts, they have a cost. And unfortunately, often ones who end up paying that cost, who pay that price, are not the working men themselves, but they're their children. Because these kids are experiencing large portions of their life with very little time with their dads. One, one commentary I read this week referenced a study that had been done about parents spending time with their kids, and this study said that the average time spent that parents spend with their kids in a day is 37 seconds. What? Now, we're at 37 seconds. No way. That's, that's dumb. Well, what, let's think about it th- like this. Say, so Dad gets up in the morning and leaves the house before the kids get up. doesn't happen in toddler houses, but... We can dream. <laughs> Dad gets home from the office or wherever he's working after dinner's been served. So he may see his kids for that little brief time before they have to go off to do their homework and then before they go to bed. Well, if we think about that, that 37, second sounds doesn't, the 37, 37 seconds, man, that's a tongue twister, doesn't sound as far-fetched as we originally thought. Fellow dads, don't miss this. Our kids need us more present in our lives than they need us to get that raise. A summer family vacation is great. Take them. But that can't be the one time a year where our kids get special daddy time our kids need to know that they are more important to us than our jobs because they are more important to us than our jobs. Your workplace can hire a replacement, but God has sovereignly placed you in to be your kid's father or stepfather or grandfather And there is no replacing you in that role. So dads, spend time with your kids. Prioritize them. Leave the office early to go to their baseball games. Shoot hoops in the backyard with them after dinner. Read to them. Play Minecraft with them. Take them out for ice cream. Or how about about this one? Volunteer to be a chaperone on the class trip. (laughs) That's my burden to bear. I mean, think about that. How many chaperones, like dad chaperones, have you seen on a second grade field trip to the farm? None. Prioritize your kids. Invest in your kids and encourage them. Get to know them and let them get to know you help out with homework. Listen to the drama that happened in the fifth period between Brad and Stacy. <laughs> Brad, you beautiful hunk, you such a jerk though. <laughs> Prioritize your kid. Invest in them. But then most importantly, teach your children the ways of the Lord. You are the head of the household which means that a major part of your role is to disciple your kids. Proverbs 22:6 says, "Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it." Training means work. It takes intentionality, it takes effort to teach your kids about God, about the Bible, about a Christian worldview. But this is work that has eternal ramifications. This work will outlast anything we do on earth. So we need to take the time to do it. Switch that, we need to make time to do it. And this will obviously look different in different stages of life, in different circumstances, but we cannot allow the spiritual discipleship of our children to be the one thing that gets consistently crossed off every week on the to-do list. Like, I'll just put it off next week and then next week. Don't do that. That cannot be the one thing we do. Paul, in our scripture, he tells us to not discourage our our children. And there's no better way to encourage them to remind them day after day that Jesus loves them so much that he died for them so that they can live. If you don't know how to encourage your t- children, tell them about Jesus over and over and over again until they are tired of hearing it. Well, now that we've, we've mastered marriage, we've mastered parenting, um, it's time to go on to the last topic that's highlighted in our passage, and that is God is glorified through our work. You know, I, I struggled a little bit with how to best title this section of our manual. Um, but I just think I decided to go with, like, workplace dynamics. Um, but in, in, chapter, in, thir- in chapter 322 through chapter 41, we are given our human resources handbook. And this is a handbook that gives guidance to the workers and also gives counsel to the bosses. So to save you guys the time of reading off the fine print um, that we don't read anyway when we say we read it, um, I'm going to distill this section into two key phrases, to the worker and to the boss. So first, to the worker, we can glorify God through our work when we serve wholeheartedly. Paul is calling us to work hard, and not only in appearances, but all, and just so that it look, looks like we're trying our best, I, I remember years ago when it was like March Madness, they had this, this section where, you know, if you were watching the game, you could quick hit a button and it would like go to a spreadsheet when your boss came by. Like, uh, but I mean, yeah, I may have used that once in school or not. But, but, you know, so we're not called just to work hard in appearance, but we're supposed to work hard. We're supposed to try our best. We're supposed to give it our all in everything that we do. Now, it is important to to not miss who Paul was addressing this section to. Now, these were not your corporate nine-to-five America folks. This section was actually addressed to bondservants. It's another way to say slaves. In this part of the world, about, they, they estimated that about one-third of the Roman Empire was, was a slave. And I really I want to stress right away, this, like the Bible teaching is not advocating for slavery, right? Just as, you know, Cults especially have taken, you know, this idea of submitting and you know, gone crazy with it. The people have also used these passages to justify slavery. That's not at all what's the case here. These were obviously people who were not free to come and go as they pleased that Paul was speaking to. And depending on their situation, their living, like their, their living situations would not have been great. And yet, God's calling them to serve wholeheartedly. But the reason for serving in this manner wasn't because their masters were worthy, but because by working hard where they were, they were able to serve God. They were able to serve their Lord. And while some of these people, I mean, especially if they were slaves their entire lives, they maybe, have, they maybe went years without receiving any sort of reward, but what Colossians 3 does, what it reminds us, though, is that there's eternal inheritance waiting for these people in heaven, in a place where no man or no woman could steal it away from them. We have, we have biblical heroes like Joseph and Daniel who, understand, who understood this section very well. If you think about Joseph and Daniel, these were both men in the Old Testament who were taken from their homes. They were, they were taken to a foreign land and to, be, to be servants, to be slaves. And yet they understood well that God was with them even in the darkest of circumstances. And that by serving their earthly masters to the best of their ability, in all, actual, in all actuality, what they were doing is they were serving God. And in both accounts, in both Joseph and Daniel's life, all, like these All the people that Joseph and Daniel worked for were extremely blessed through the work of these men. The book kind of think of a New Testament uh, parallel too. We go to the book of Philemon, and there's the dialogue between Paul and Philemon about Onesimus. Um, Again, that's that's a phrase. You know, God or Paul's sending Onesimus back, who's the slave. He's sending him back not as a slave, but as a as a brother in Christ. Friends, there are going to be seasons of our lives when we feel and when we're working where we just feel like simple cogs in the in the machine. Or we may have bosses who are just intolerable. But what this text is calling us to do is to work wholeheartedly. Because what it's saying is that even what may feel mundane or ordinary, God can be glorified through our efforts. So we are called to work hard this week. And, those, and then to those of you who are in leadership positions, we can glorify God through our work when we lead like Christ. If you're a boss, don't call your work a, that's, a that's That's a good, good guidance there. But this text is asking us specifically, how are you leading? Would the people that are working underneath you say that you treat them justly and fairly? There's all sorts of leadership books and online trainings that we can watch about how to be the best and most effective leader that we can be. But ultimately, if we want to be the best leader, we should only look to Christ, to Jesus, who calls himself the Good Shepherd, the Shepherd who leads us beside quiet waters, who restores our souls who leads us in paths of righteousness, who guides us through the valley of even the shadow of death, and who prepares a place for us at his table in his eternal house. Our workplaces would be completely transformed if we led like shepherds, if we led like Christ. Colossians 3 has given us a hefty, hefty manual. So I'd encourage us to not throw it aside or to not misuse it, but to use it as God has intended to build up our, all of our relationships and ultimately to bring God glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just reminded when we go through this text of how you are so good, how you are our ultimate Father, how you submitted to the will of the Father it's for us when you died on the cross. We ask that you lead us this week as a shepherd and that you teach us to also shepherd well, if that may be our spouse or our children or those who work for us, Lord. Transform our lives in ways that only you can through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.